0: normally being a little extra might be a bit much but not when it comes to healthcare. that's why united healthcare's health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com
1: this podcast is brought to you by green and black's velvet edition a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate
2: you're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast, I'm Cathy Sheridan. Later on, Roisin Ingle will be talking to psychologist and mindfulness meditation teacher Susanna Healy about her book, The Seven Day Soul, which aims to provide a clear path to finding deeper meaning and joy in life through a blend of science and spirituality. But first, some of you may have read a piece by Amy Johnston on irishtimes.com recently about her landing a dream job in the Maldives. If you haven't heard about it, well, prepare to feel really jealous. The 26-year-old from Antrim has swapped Ireland for the white sands and sunshine of the Maldives after beating thousands of applicants to become the barefoot bookseller. Wow. The job in the luxury eco-resort of Soniva Fushi in the exotic Indian Ocean destination was advertised online last year by hotel library curator company Ultimate Library. Did you know there was such a thing? Amy has been shoeless on the island for a month now and she spoke to Jennifer Ryan about how it's all going. Amy Johnston, you
0: have landed the dreamiest of jobs. Can you please sickeningly tell us where you are at the moment? (laughs)
3: I am currently um, on Confonadou Island, which is um, an island in the Maldives. uh, And I am working
0: as a barefoot bookseller for a luxury resort. And the job is, as you say, the barefoot bookseller. Have they really taken your shoes? They have taken my shoes.
3: <laughs> the moment I landed on the island, I kind of got to the jetty and uh, a colleague asked me to remove my shoes. And I, I didn't actually think that that part was serious, but but, <laughs> but it was. Uh, the tagline on the
0: island is no news, no shoes. So um, I'm kind of living by that at the moment. Wow. So you're not uh, you're not hearing about Brexit on a daily basis. Yeah. <laughs>
3: For the first time in two and a half years, three years, I have been kind of Brexit-free, which is which is nice. Um, I'm not sure I'll I'll like coming back to to the catch up of it, but
0: well, the way things are going, it could still be going on by the time you get back here. anyway. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, so I
3: haven't escaped it too much. Okay? No, no.
0: But enough about Brexit. My God, can you explain <laughs> how this dream job came about? First of all.
3: Mm. Um, so I actually saw the job initially posted. So the job is, um, kind of run by Ultimate Library. Uh, They're a company in the UK that curate these beautiful kind of bespoke library collections for high-end resorts, hotels, restaurants, that kind of thing. And they got together with Soneva Fushi, um, a luxury resort here in the Maldives, and kind of thought, well, wouldn't it be brilliant if we had a bookstore and if we had somewhere on the island to promote reading for leisure? So that's how the job itself uh, came about and I saw it initially posted on book brunch, which is a publishing industry trade magazine. And I I think it was like, you know, the last, you know, the few final days of summer in August, 2018. And I, I saw it and I just thought it seemed like the most outlandish thing. So I kind of applied, not really expecting anything to come of it. Um, and the day after, I re- I remember The Guardian had picked it up and they, they ran an article on it asking if it was the best job in the world. <laughs> and uh, and it kind of went viral after that. So,
0: so what was the, the kind of the competition phase like? I know, it, was there a lot of people, do you know, going for the job? And did you have to go through a long series of interviews? How did you get it, basically?
3: Mm. I mean, I, I don't have the exact numbers. I, I did hear that there were quite a few that applied, and um, and I think I just got really, really lucky. Um, there were quite a few interview stages. Like, you know, I had two or three interviews, and then I had some sort of creative tasks set along the way, um, different little things I had to make or produce. But mainly it was just kind of
0: always talking about Books,
3: <laughs> which which I love, so so that was it. It was an enjoyable experience, actually.
0: Yeah, well, you've you've always been very passionate about books. I know you work in Ireland here for Penguin Random House, and mm. that's d- dealing with books on on a daily basis as well. Mm-hmm. But you wrote mm-hmm. a lovely piece in the Irish Times during the week, and you talked about. Um, you're falling in love with books as a kid in Northern Ireland and your mum mm. getting the library van to come around um, to where you live. Can you talk to us about that, about your how you discovered your love of books?
3: Yeah, so my mum got in touch with um, Libraries and I and they have this gorgeous little library van service, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's just like a little mobile uh, van that they bring around from place to place. And they started visiting us, I think, once every few weeks. And to me, that was just amazing. Like I could go outside my front door and I could pop into this little library van and take whatever book I wanted. And and yeah, it was just incredible. And I think it really just sparked this love that I have even still about reading, for, for reading and where it can take you. So I, I just loved it from then on. And I think I was very lucky as well that I had parents who very much encouraged me to to read on my own, and you know, to read before bed, um, and that kind of thing. So it really started there, I guess. Yeah.
0: And back to the job now. What, why do you think that they picked you for the job? What do you think it was that, that that clinched it? Was it was it that uh, your passion for books, that, the way you've just described it there? Do you think that came across and that's what clinched it?
3: Um. I yeah. I I'd like to think so. I mean, I do think it probably is hugely down to to luck, but I. Do, there's no denying that I absolutely love books. I love talking about them. I love um, kind of getting into rows or discussions or <laughs> whatever it is about them. So I, I do think that came across and that's what they were looking for. They were looking for someone who could come to the island and talks about, talk about books as if they were the most important things in the world, which they are to me.
0: <laughs> and where were you when you found out that you got the job?
3: Oh, I think I had just left work and it was, was it the first or second week of January? It was a miserable day anyway. Oh my God. It was lashing. And uh, and I kind of got the email that, that I had got the job. And I, I, th- I think I just kind of put my phone away because I didn't really like, I think I was stunned. I was like, what are you on about? Um, and I showed it to my brother I I sent it to my brother and I I kept getting him to check it over and over again throughout the weekend to make sure I hadn't like imagined it (laughs) or like made it up in my head you know
0: and how were Penguin when you told them I'm going to need to take a few months off here guys
3: (laughs) Penguin Random House Ireland have been amazing and they've been so supportive I mean I'm going to sound so spoiled here, but...
0: (laughs) Go on, go on.
3: (laughs) So, I mean, it. it, so I'm a publicist for Penguin Random House Ireland. I work in the publicity team and it is kind of a dream job already. And it's a job that I've been doing for three years and that I love to bits. Um, And they're just such a great team there. So when I told them about the opportunity, they, they just were incredibly supportive and... Uh, and they offered me the, the time off to do it. Um, and I'm really, like, I'm, I'm very grateful because I'm aware that not everybody kind of gets that level of support. So so it just, it's just, it's been great.
0: Can you describe a typical day on the island now?
3: Okay. <laughs> okay, typical day starts with breakfast. We have this chef in the staff canteen and he makes, oh my God, he makes the world's best omelets. They're amazing. Um, so I go from there to the bookshop and I am talking to guests. I'm recommending them books um, uh, or talking about our favorite writers and things like that until lunchtime. My lunchtime is three hours long. Oh my <laughs> God. I feel like a brat for even saying, but uh, I go scuba diving um, or snorkeling on my lunch break. And, and then I'm back to the, to the bookshop for the evening. Uh, and, you know, we host different little events. Uh, here in the bookshop and creative writing classes and and things like that so so yeah it's 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 always pretty full-on my days are normally pretty busy but um in a great
0: way yeah it sounds like it's pretty uh pretty nice busy I have to yeah. say yeah and did <laughs> yeah. you did you travel alone and are you living in some kind of like a staff compound or what is it like mm.
3: Uh, yeah, I did. I traveled kind of on my own. I think I got something like four flights, <laughs> like many buses, uh, a boat a boat ride here. So it was a bit of a long journey, but it was worth it. Um, and yeah, I'm living kind of in a staff area on the island. Um, there, There's about, I think, three or four hundred members of staff here. So it's always kind of really busy and everyone's always kind of doing something and there are lots of people to just kind of hang around with, which is great. I'm lucky I'm right beside the staff bar. Uh, (laughs) So that's pretty good. <laughs> that
0: is good, and I mentioned a piece earlier that that you wrote in the Irish Times this week, and in it you also talked about um, our colleague here Rosita Boland's book elsewhere, and that is a book all about her travels that she's made as a, a, a lone woman across the world over the past yeah. few decades. You know, you see, you the, the way you spoke about it, it obviously had a big impact on you. Mm. Will you be tempted to jot down some of your own travels after this? <laughs>
3: I mean, I couldn't. Do justice to Rosita's work at all. Um, it was just breathless is the perfect word for it. When I when I was reading um, elsewhere, I was kind of reading it as I was on these flights and in these airports and kind of waiting to start this adventure to go somewhere else. And the way she describes her travels all across the world at different moments in her life really does just leave you breathless. Um, So I don't think I'd be able to hold a candle to her writing at all. But definitely, it's something that I'm trying to jot down as much as I can. I've kind of been inspired by her to do so. So
0: we'll see how it goes. Well, we wish you all the best and enjoy every single minute of it. Don't think about Brexit at all. (laughs) You won't miss a thing. Amy Johnston, thank you very much for speaking to us and enjoy. Thank you so much.
2: Okay, everybody who's met her is saying that couldn't happen to a nicer person, so get over yourselves. That was Amy Johnston there, a.k.a. the Barefoot Bookseller.
1: Green and Black's Velvet Edition range introduces a variety of signature flavours in a smooth, velvety finish made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. Choose Green and Black's chocolate and escape the ordinary.
2: Now, the seven-day soul answers the question, where do we go if we don't go to Mass? By putting forward the seven daily pillars to practice in our daily lives to ensure that our spiritual life is not just for Sundays or the yoga mat. Susanna Healy is the author of this book, and here she is talking to Roshin Ingle about it.
1: Susanna, thank you very much for coming in. I think this is a fascinating book you've written. It's called The Seven-Day Soul, Finding Meaning Beneath the Noise, which... I know a lot of our listeners uh, have a lot of very noisy lives and will be very interested in. So first of all, I just wanted to ask you how you came to write a book about spirituality because your last book, your first book, was about weight loss, which yeah. uh, can be a spiritual endeavour as well, I suppose. <laughs> but
4: uh, how did you come to this? Um, I think, first of all, thank you for having me on the show. you um, welcome. I think it was absolutely... Uh, it was just completely a personal thing. I'm so lucky to be in a position where my kind of my work and what I would be reading anyway and what I would read just out of pure interest were kind of coming together. Um, a lot of the books that I would read would be as a psychologist. So they're kind of psychology, kind of theology or verging on theology and, and philosophy. So those three kind of came together for me and they they, they do. They are what my interest, where my interests lie. And um, so I suppose I just, I began to feel this quite a strong urge actually to feel, and I, I love writing anyway, um, and I felt the strong urge to start speaking up about something that I felt isn't being said. To me, writing is a way of, of of just speaking to just more people than you normally get to. That's all it is. And I felt that I needed to speak up and say, can almost meet an unmet need and to, even if I couldn't answer them all in some cases, to voice a place where people are and particularly in Ireland in our religion slash spirituality um and voice those concerns and give a, a space for people to talk about them. And
1: as a woman, and talking to other women, friends or family, did you do you feel that there is this kind of um, conversation going on that perhaps we've left a lot of traditional spirituality or religion behind us, or some people have? I know there's still a great many people in this country who still practice, and I know you do yourself as well. Uh, but that there are people asking questions and wondering where are we now in terms of how we practice and how we express spirituality and how we, you know, feel about those things inside. Are, is it women particularly that you kind of have a sense that they're feeling these things?
4: I think they are. They have been the first to voice it, or the more open ones to voice it. Uh, we are we are often the ones who will voice things that perhaps men find it more difficult to speak about. However. Um, since publishing the book, a lot more more men are now uh, and speaking about it when I, I, I raised the issue. Because when I kind of talked about, oh, I'm writing a book at the moment or I'm researching a book at the moment, a lot of people were saying, yeah, that question, what do you do if you don't go to church? You know, where do we go for a kind of a systematic approach to spirituality? You can get it in yoga classes, in exercise, in walking the dog, in with your children, whatever it might be. But they're kind of episodic. They're just they're momentary and they're kind of fleeting and they're less controllable. So in a way, because for so long, religion equals spirituality for so many Irish people. We didn't really have any other options. And although, as you say, I do have religious beliefs, I just feel if it doesn't include everybody it isn't you haven't got there to, to the truth yet
1: which is interesting because for me a lot of religions would be very um not inclusive i mean that's the whole point of religions mm-hmm. i mean whether it's muslim or catholicism i'm not going to single mm-hmm. any of them out mm-hmm. because a lot of them either they exclude women in certain roles or they exclude people who have different you know sexuality or mm-hmm. same sex mm-hmm. people and for me that's why i'm not particularly in fact i have a very strong antipathy towards all religions because they are not inclusive. So it's interesting that you say you're almost talking about an idealistic, utopian religion that doesn't really exist.
4: Yeah, no, I think that's a fair criticism. And I think to some extent, if you don't set up some kind of boundaries as to what you do and don't stand for, then You don't really stand for anything to some extent. And yet we... So it's a difficult subject and that's okay. You know, I may not have the answer to it. And yet at the same time, it's really important um, because teachings come and go and teachings in, for example, the Catholic tradition have come and gone and there was, you know, belief in limbo and now there isn't. And I think hell is gone as well. Um, You know, so these things come and go. But the much more... They are... I think they are kind of generational representations of a, of a generation and of themes are of, for example, in the book I talk about the fact that, um, you know, in, in a previous generation they would have been much more, they would have been familiar with the phrase God-fearing. Now, I religious but I hope my children have no concept of that idea being God fearing. So, um, I've always you know. thought of that phrase as more
1: Protestant, actually, and more sort of on that side of things. You, well, I have a little bit to do with that uh, at the moment in terms of my kids schooling and okay. uh, my partner and stuff. So I okay. hear that phrase is still a bit used. Do you? OK,
4: <laughs> really interesting. And to, I would hate it because to me, I might use the word God and somebody else might use the word love. And somebody else might say nature or the universe or ultimate mystery or something. And I think we're talking about the same thing. Um, so, yeah, so but but I so I would think love is actually a very strong part of it. And it's something that a hugely important part of it and a hugely important to all of our lives. But gets. um gets kind of, it's kind of thing, you don't really talk about that in business or in corporate life or that kind of thing. But we go home to it and we will live and die for the people we love. Mm. Um, It is fundamental to the, it it is the most important thing in our lives. And yet we kind of, it's a bit fluffy and it's not very corporate or speak or whatever it might be. So we leave it aside it's so important in mental health and what I call spiritual health, which, which I consider a dimension of our health. Yeah,
1: let's talk about that because you talk about sort of spiritual health as, a, as the third pillar or something of, mm. and it, and it sh- that it should be part of our kind of well-being discussion. We're, you know, Not just going and doing your Fitbit and you're running down the road that, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. that uh, spiritual health is important. So tell me about that.
4: Yeah, and I hate to add to people's to-do list because it's yeah, not Yeah, you like are it. and that's really <laughs> no, annoying. We've I enough to bloody do, <laughs> Susanna. Don't we just? Don't we just? It's painful. But... But all the things and the gurus telling us what to do. um, But what I think is that there's the physical health, the physical dimension, the mental dimension. And these are all completely entwined. And I say the spiritual dimension as well. Now, the mental dimension we tend to take as what's going on in our head, our mental health. So it's very much intrapersonal. It's to do with ourselves inside, outside ourselves. Spirituality. Now, spirituality could be religious, it could be environmentalism. Um, it, 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 But it is, if you, uh, to me, it, it, it's a wider lens and it is actually more a right-brained activity, actually, because the right brain, the right and left brain, we use them all the time, together all the time, but how they process the world is very different. The left side of the brain is much more atomistic, it's much more detailed, it's kind of nose to the grindstone, it's what's straight in front of you. The right side of the brain's, the way it perceives the world is much more the bigger picture. So it's a bit like um, corporate away days and that kind of thing where the whole company comes together or the management team comes together and they see, so where are we going? You know, where are we going or what do we want our values to be or whatever? The big picture thinking spirituality in our lives is that big picture thinking. It is where do we fit into the bigger picture of things? And this is where I talk about. So for a lot, uh, I talk a lot in the book about meaning. Um, So, Finding meaning in life is a very spiritual matter. You may be not religious at all, but we need to find meaning in our lives. And what meaning is, is that being able to see the wood for the trees kind of way. It's finding our place in the world, being able to see ourselves, not just talking about the mind, which is mental health, but actually seeing ourselves in respect of the bigger picture.
1: In respect of other people too, because I suppose a lot of it is about our uh, perspective in relation to doing good things for each other. I mean, there's a way of, I suppose, living what you might call a spiritual life that doesn't actually involve anything to do with even the word spirituality or religion that I, I, you know, I think that's what we're a bit hung up with in this country is that it has to be attached to some kind of religious notion. But actually, people kind of know innately, I think, human beings, how to do good and how to care about other people and when they've not done that and when they've made mistakes. And um And it's interesting that we've kind of been so, I would say, brainwashed in this country that those in a way, the Catholic Church sort of hijacked those good deeds and hijacked that idea of living a good life. When in fact, you know, I think it's possible to do that without any spiritual necessarily um, guidelines.
4: Yeah, I mean, of course, it's uh, people can be deeply spiritual, but not at all religious. Uh, people can be religious, but I would say actually in a way not spiritual. They can be what I call religious by rote. There's a certain element of kind of um, that kind of hand-me-down hand, hand me down religion from the family, you know, purse kind of thing, as it were. Um, so there's all sorts. And then there's people who are deeply religious and spiritual. But obviously religion is supposed to be about living spiritual life, no matter what the religion is. But absolutely, I think you can live a spiritual life. What And we all kind of know the importance of love and we know the importance of trying to do good. What I talk about in the book uh, and you you touched on it there is self transcendence. So it's living a life of service to others. There's so much out there about um, bettering yourself and all that kind of thing and working on yourself and then the career and then the this, that and the other. And a lot of happiness is about uh, comes from service to other people. There's a great there's a great phrase. Um, uh, the, the door to happiness opens outwards. And that's uh, a Kierkegaard phrase, a philosopher, a brilliant phrase. It's about you get happy when you actually get your, your attention out on other people in the service of others. And that makes us feel good. But it also grows us. And so in the book, I talk about the fact that getting a bit more me- methodical about things like I'm actually practicing. I talk about the seven pillars. Of the yeah, seven tell us soul. about the
1: seven pillars. They sound very nice, uh, but sort of a bit difficult in terms of the the words there they are all forgiveness humor which is grand humor is easy generosity, gratitude, patience and stillness and you advocate kind of focusing on one of those that's why it's called the seven day soul. Focusing on one of those a day, kind of trying to incorporate them into your life.
4: Yeah, I suppose uh, I call the book "The Seven Day Soul" because I I kind of think so much of it. We've tended to think of spirituality as to do with well, when you have a baby or death or those kind of times, or maybe confirmation or and those rites kind of, of things. Passage or rites. in life. exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, what I'm talking about is actually no, it's about how we live life, but it's also very active as opposed to kind of hoping and oh, generally good because. The research generally shows that we tend to t- to think of ourselves as all above average. Now we can't all be above average, do you know what I mean? So what I'm saying, well, is- I am. I don't know about you.
2: <laughs> yeah.
4: I'll wave to you up yeah, there, yeah, 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 <laughs> from way below. But no, um, so I, I, do you know what I, I, I think that what what the system was just offering, and it, you know, I. I I think the book talks about a lot of different things, but the seven, the seven pillars are a systematized way of actually working on bettering ourselves because it is, I mean, neurobiologically, it is true that we, we become what we do every day. You know, most people will relate to the fact that if you walk into a room for a meeting, for example, and maybe it's a three-day meeting. Chances are, if you sat down and you, everything went okay the first day, you'll end up going to the same chair the second day and then the third day. We're creatures of habit. Now, there is a biological kind of reason for that because it, is a, it takes a lot less glucose, a lot less energy uh, for the brain to do exactly the same thing as we did yesterday. That's Again, today. interesting. You know, it's, it's a, it's a energy saving device and it's really clever. So. But we end up. We can do that for twenty years. Do you know what I mean? And you can kind of (laughs) go, "Whoa! I didn't know I was becoming this person. (laughs) Wasn't quite what I planned." So what I'm saying is that we can actually be very systematic in terms of actually practicing one of the seven pillars. So taking one of those, and I take it as a a little card in my. It's actually in my fridge, but um, on my fridge, not in my fridge. But (laughs) be interesting, (laughs) exactly. But and actually, kind of reminding myself. Uh, So, you know, whenever, you know, at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, other people carry it in their wallet or sometimes it might be just stuck to the dashboard in the car, whatever it might be. Remind myself, I'm going to work on this because it actually changes the neural wiring in your brain. And if you do it once off, that's fine, but it isn't going to last. If you keep doing it and practicing it and practicing it and say, oh, I'm supposed to be a bit kinder today. Uh, and I have every right to not be kind, they've wronged me, whatever it might be, but oh, I'll try and see their side because that's what I'm working on today. It actually changes the neurobiology of the brain, but it does take lots of repetition.
1: Yeah, no, I'm just thinking about your quote that you said about it opening outwards because I I know I found that myself, you know, when you're sometimes full of rage and feeling like something's been done to you and that you're, you know, being wronged. And like if you do that shift, which is very hard to do sometimes because you're in it of saying of just looking at things from the other person's perspective and, and having that compassion and a bit more empathy. It's amazing actually how transformative that is in terms of all that stuff that's building up. And it's a very simple thing, but sometimes it's staring at you in the face, but very hard to get there.
4: It takes a lot of discipline. It really does. And, um, I think it's always very easy to see the other the other side in somebody else's argument or something. Very about, easy, it? very easy. I'm just, oh, could you not forgive them? Yeah, but, yeah, you know, but it really is difficult, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you will actually agree with them.
1: Yeah, I think that's but really important, isn't it? It's a different, mm. but it
4: just dials down the anger. Can you see? I see where they're coming from. I still don't think they're right, but I get why they said that now. You know, it's a different thing. Uh, It takes a lot of discipline. It really does. And a lot of giving. That's a generosity.
1: So you've been sort of looking at the neuroscience in it as well, like the way the brain actually changes. So those uh, seven activities, say, or those aspirations to have daily, you reckon that they will do something to the brain and be a kind of it's almost like a keep fit routine for your spiritual health.
4: It is, yeah. And I actually kind of what what I'm doing is calling on companies to actually take it on board. So you could actually have one for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you know, and um, whatever it might be that everybody says, okay, we'll work on something, you know, either as a company wide or uh, that everybody has has their own, whatever, whatever way they want to do it. Um, But it does actually change the brain because what we do, we become. So whatever you keep doing repetitively, you actually strengthen the ability and the likelihood that you'll do it again that way. And I chose them because I think they're universally um, accepted values that aren't of any particular theology or any culture or whatever. They are generally accepted to be to to be good and to be of benefit. And do you know something? I know it's corny to say, and I know it's, you know, we kind of say oh, it's not very corporate again or whatever it might be, but most of us hopefully do want to change the world. It's sad if you don't. It's actually sad if you don't, but you know, it might be idealistic, but yeah, we're all responsible for it. If we want this peace or kind of whatever it might be, you have to be able to trust yourself to have done your little bit in actually saying, well, could I bite my tongue? If I was in power, uh, could I say the right thing? Could I manage that? Could I be more generous of spirit with the government budget, whatever it might be? Um, and it was, I was very proud uh, that uh, President Michael D. Higgins wrote a piece for the, for the piece on spirituality and government. Because, as I say, if it's if it's a matter of health, then it's a matter of public interest. So I I talk about it in in business, in architecture, in the education system, the healthcare system, and in government. so
1: you you say that the book is kind of trying to answer that question. What do we do if we don't go to church, which you mentioned earlier? So apart from these seven pillars, what do we do? I mean, our, how do we make these gatherings? People still want to gather, maybe not necessarily in the structures that we're used to doing. So what have you found that people are doing or have you noticed that there are more alternatives to the usual?
4: I think there are things like that are happening sometimes online Are people find that, oh, I find this group online very, um, y- you know, very consoling or I found my tribe, as it were, that kind of thing. Um, I feel people seem to other than book clubs people don't seem to <laughs> meet together well, My and friend
1: Ruth who wrote that book I found my tribe her thing is all about the swimming and there's yes, definitely exactly. a spiritual element to all those women gathering uh, in the sea on mad hours of the morning and naked in the, in the full moon and all that kind of lark
4: There definitely is <laughs> and that's hugely spiritual and I love the word tribe I think it's a fantastic word you know um, so, yeah, so those kind of things. But there aren't that many gatherings, I, I think. or some, For some people, it's running or something like that. But they may never use the word spiritual. But it's still very much interconnectedness and a, a gathering of people together. Now, it doesn't mean that they are all kind of of one mind spiritually in any shape or form. But it can be spiritual in a different way. Um, but I do think that um, I, I, I think that there might be a need in people. And this is what I'm beginning to hear that. If we could set up book clubs or reading clubs or reading groups or whatever on this subject, you know, um, so that people might say, OK, we've we've done the book club thing. That's been going good a good while now at this stage. But actually, could we set up some reading groups on this philosophy, psychology and all of that?
1: Well, it's interesting because they're talk, talking about And I know the president also is very keen on bringing philosophy into schools and allowing kids from a very young age to look at these issues and talk about them in a way, apart from the very sort of dogmatic, uh, religious kind of way that we've spoken about it before. So tell our listeners, our women, why they should read this book.
4: Um, I think, I hope they will want to read this book. Um, I'm not going to force anybody to read it. I, I hope they will want to read it. I hope that it will answer something, uh, that it offers... Uh, a familiar voice in terms of, oh, yes, I feel that as well, or I want to know more about that. Um, I have this to offer. I do feel like there's more of me uh, available than I could be using that I'm perhaps not offering to the world at the moment. Um, And I do want to find that place of meaning and that my my life has meaning already. You don't need to go finding it. You already have meaning. Uh, But it's just a matter of seeing it. And I hope that that's what the book offers to people. And I hope it's welcoming to everybody.
1: Well, I think it sounds fascinating, and I know from even my friends and family that these are conversations that we're we're having, and and it's good to have like a a book that kind of gives you a few subjects that you can delve into because there's a lot of um, theology in it, there's a lot of science in it. It's so you've really steered away from making it, as you said, a, a fluffy kind of subject and making it a, quite a, you know, a robust discussion.
4: Yes, and I'm really glad you you picked up on that because I just think t- a lot of spirituality books are a bit think it and you'll have it type thing. And I, you know, I just think they're they're too fluffy and they just lose an awful lot of people. Uh, Whereas I felt, no, no, this is really important. This is about where we're going. This is about our kids' futures. This is about our lives. Okay, brilliant.
1: The book, it's called The Seven Day Soul, Finding Meaning Beneath the Noise. Um,
2: Susanna Healy, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Thanks to our guests, Amy Johnston and Susanna Healy. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. If you do want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then please do head along to iTunes and give us a review. The podcast is produced by Rosie Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening.